Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the mayor wants a dialogue with the LGBTQ community, but some are refusing to show up. The premier says he needs to determine the real number of children on the autism spectrum and the wait lists, and federal government nepotism as four and six judges were appointed in New Brunswick. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. But to begin with, uh, the story continues uh, to grow and uh, concern, I think, an awful lot of Hamiltonians right now. Uh, and that seems to be, uh, well, the fact that the city council, the police, and uh, the LGBTQ community seem to be at loggerheads. Well, certainly are uh, because of what happened, of course, at Gage Park during Pride. Uh, subsequent arrests that have been made, or in some cases have not been made. And um, now attempts uh, by the mayor, we're told, uh, to try to bring everybody together. Apparently there's supposed to be a meeting on Friday about this to try to lessen the tension between the city and the LGBTQ community. However, many of the leaders of that community are now saying they're not going. As a matter of fact, they don't want anybody to show up for that. So where do we go? How do we get this thing resolved? How do we find some middle ground here and some resolution so at least we can talk about this? Uh, not too many people are talking about that right now. As a matter of fact, everybody's just kind of cooling their jets and say, let's wait in a couple of days and cool things off. But I want to bring a, a former mayor uh, into the conversation here. Larry Danny, of course, was the mayor for the city of Hamilton and a longtime councillor and uh, councillor in Stony Creek as well. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give his perspective on this. Larry, thanks for the time. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm well, Bill. Good morning. What's your read on what you've seen happening here for about the last uh, four, three or four weeks, I guess now, Larry? It's ever since Pride Week and, and, and the subsequent problems that have ensued. Well, I, I'm very concerned about how I see things developing, Bill. And, and, and let me say, and I've got to say this, because, um, uh, the, the, you know, uh, Twitter is, is sometimes not the best uh, uh, forum for getting opinions or for having dialogue. And I don't want to be mix, misconstrued about this. I think I'm, on, I'm squarely on the side of the LGBTQ community. I think that they have every right, uh, especially uh, when they celebrate Pride Days, to do so in a peaceful manner, uh, celebrating who they are, who they love, and uh, must feel safe and included in any community, especially in Hamilton. And that did not happen uh, when they went to Gage Park uh, apparently, um, and uh, and it didn't happen because there were some uh, uh, protesters, some religious bigots, it seems to me, and some of these yellow vesters who uh, are also offside, as far as I'm concerned, and uh, and they were disrupting what should have been a peaceful Pride Day in the city of Hamilton. So I'm squarely on the side of uh, of uh, the community in that respect. And I think uh, most Hamiltonians, if not all Hamiltonians, I also decry the fact that, that these, these fascists are using our city forecourt to, to, to vent their views, and I support Councillor Clark's motion to try to find a way of shutting them out legally uh, so that the city doesn't get itself in trouble. However, having said that, what I see ensuing uh, as the result of, of uh, the, the situation there is a, an unwillingness uh, on the part of everybody to sit down and talk about what went wrong, uh, what went uh, right, if anything, and how to make things better. People are refusing to talk and, in fact, trying to, trying to block others who may be willing to negotiate and talk from doing so. And I think that's shameful because primarily what that does is it makes us forget what started this in the first place. Who's talking about the bad guys that created the problem? Nobody. Now everybody's talking about this internal fight between the mayor and the police and, and, and the leaders in the, in the uh, LGBTQ community. And I just don't think that that's healthy. Well, there are some accusations uh, that have gone back and forth on this. I don't know if you heard my uh, discussion with Graham Crawford about this yesterday. Uh, he w is one of those people, as you know, Larry, that uh, was invited by the mayor's office to attend. He has declined, said he won't do that. Uh, and his rationale for it, I'll paraphrase what Graham told us yesterday, is that uh, there's work to be done before they can actually sit down. In other words, uh, they're looking for an apology from city council, from the mayor. They're looking for an apology from Hamilton police. And uh, I, I get the impression from what Graham is saying and some of the comments I've heard from some of the other leaders in the community that nothing's going to happen until those two things are at least addressed. Well, and, and that may be necessary, but 
tell me, Bill, what what um, advantage is there to establishing some preconditions uh, before anything um, happens? And it seems to me that if that is something that the community wants and maybe even deserves, go to a meeting and have that difficult conversation as to why that's important. But to establish a precondition automatically sets up a wall that maybe some will not see beyond for whatever reason, be it political or, or you know, uh, I did nothing wrong, therefore why should I apologize? It sets up these barriers to problem solving. And why do that? So if you're a person of good faith, and I have lots of respect for Graham, he's a very intelligent man, although he can certainly uh, be, be hard with his opinion sometimes, as all of us, I suppose, can. But why establish a situation that prevents good dialogue from occurring and good results from being achieved? I just don't get that. Well, there are people that are, are, are hurt. Uh, there are people that are scared. And, I mean, that's one of the most troubling aspects, I think, Larry, of the, what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, that there are people that live in this community right now that don't feel safe. And, and, and that needs to be addressed. Uh, so I, I guess the question we're asking, and we've tried to get in touch with the mayor's office uh, on this, is to find out exactly who's going to be at that table and what the discussion is going to be about. Yeah, and, and, uh, and there are people who are scared. And I listen, I, I've spoken to a, a very responsible individual. I'm, I'm not going to uh, mention the name. Of, of, of a member of the LGBTQ community uh, has a very responsible executive-type job in the city of Hamilton, and indicates that there are times when he and his partner are afraid to even walk down the street because of name-calling or threats and so on. And I'm saying to myself, how can we allow that to happen in a community like ours? That just should never be. But how do you resolve it? How do you resolve it without sitting down with all of the authorities, be they civic, be they law enforcement, be they whatever, to try to get at some answers to those questions. And not that we should be uh, so so um, idealistic as to think that every single problem is always going to be resolved, but it's all got to start with dialogue, with relating to each other, with sitting down across the table, disagreeing vehemently perhaps if that's necessary, but, but continuing the dialogue so that we can find a way ahead establishing obstacles and walls and preconditions and uh, you know unless you do that i'm not going to do this uh is is just not it's just not right and look i i mentioned i referenced twitter a few moments ago i i've been pleading for um the notion that uh dialogue and engagement is better than not dialogue and not engagement i've been called every name in the book including a technocrat because i believe in dialogue I've been called out of touch. I've been, call, I've been asked to stop voicing my opinion by some people as well because I happen to believe that dialogue is better than non-engagement. I mean, how skewed is this perspective? It is very skewed. And, and the problem that I see, and, and I've tried to talk to some of the principals on this program over the last little while, is those that have spoken out, uh, Larry, have oftentimes really just thrown gasoline under the fire with with what they've said and, and the manner in which they've said it. And a lot of that is, is quite frankly, as you said, is on social media. Some of the comments uh, and observations I've seen from a lot of people in this community, on Facebook and on Twitter especially, uh, is, is hurting, not helping the situation. Yes, yes. And, and my concern is that, that even by voicing an opinion about dialogue, uh, some people are interpreting that as lack of support. And that's why I began, you know, my comments by saying that I'm squarely on the side of the angels on this, and that is people who simply want to be proud of who they are and want to exhibit that one day a year in a manifest way. And how can anybody argue against that? So I'm totally on that side. But when things go sideways, as they seem to have, as they obviously have in this situation, for whatever reason, uh, you know, somebody said something they shouldn't, something was misinterpreted, the chief made some comments. I think everybody needs to get together and, and have an honest discussion about, okay, what was said, why was it hurtful, how is it being perceived even if it wasn't intended to be hurtful, and how do we move forward? How can you do that without sitting down together and, and working out a game plan that makes things better? It just is, is you know, uh, is, is diplomacy 101. 
you sat when you were the mayor of the city of Hamilton, Larry. You sat on the police services board, of course. Uh, and, and I understand that there were no issues that I can recall anyway uh, uh, in, well, that were in like manner to what we're facing right now. Uh, but there well, were some there rather contentious. It was a situation where the chief went on a, uh, on a, on a trip. Uh, I remember that, yes. That the member was invited to Israel uh, on a security issue, also visited some of the Palestinian uh, lands. And, of course, then there was a firestorm uh, because uh, those who were sympathetic to one side saw that he shouldn't have gone and so on. wasn't quite as heated as this. It dissipated, but for a brief moment of time, it certainly brings back those memories. I do recall that now that you bring it up. That's right. It was a very controversial issue that we discussed uh, with you at the time and uh, with the uh, the chief at the time as well. But how do you... Let, let's discuss that, though, because obviously one of the items here that seems to be uh, a bother to everyone here is the action, or some people might characterize as inaction, of Hamilton police. And, and you heard the comments that Chief Gert made on our program a week and a half or so ago uh, that seemed to have inflamed the situation. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and you know, we, we've invited them back we tried to talk about this to try to get some clarity on this. I, I, how, as a member of the Police Services Board at one time, and as the mayor of the city of Hamilton... Uh, how do you address the concerns that people have about policing in this community? Because that's certainly a factor in what's going on now. Yeah. So, and and that is and that is absolutely important to, to to try to understand and try to understand what the chief said. And I did hear the chief made those comments. And so when I listened to them, I thought, okay, um, is he saying? Is the chief saying that because we weren't invited or welcomed to be uh, full participants? Our response was a little slower because we're just a little ticked. I can't imagine the chief having said that. Or was he saying that if we were in the midst of and part of the celebration, and therefore the the proximity would have had us react faster? I can understand that. If you're on the periphery, it takes time. If you've got just a few people because people don't want to see the uniforms, then you've got to call for backup. So those logistics need to be worked out and... and uh, and need to be understood. So I'm not sure which of those two the chief meant, but it's a discussion worth having. And, and it's a difficult discussion, even if it's to say to the chief, if, if he meant the, the former of those two statements, say, chief, you were totally wrong on that, out of line. Have that discussion. But how can you have that discussion if you're setting up the, uh, the barrier to even being at the table so that you can have those difficult discussions? And so as a member of the, uh, of the police services board, I mean, our job, as, as you know, Bill, was to uh, not, not get involved in daily operations, but to provide resources and policy. And, and if something goes wrong in the community or needs to be addressed, then you address it as a board and, and you listen to, to advice on how to make things better. Always the intention should be in making things better, but it's got to be thoughtful. It's got to be fair. It has to listen to all of the uh, all of the uh, uh, all of the uh, perspectives, and then you move forward. And, and I, I listen. I I want to take what you're saying here at, at face value because I think there's some concerns about this, and it's not just the comments that Chief Gert made. I mean, you've heard some of the stories, and I wasn't there at Gage Park, so I mean, we're just going by the recollection that some people that did attend are, are telling us uh, that they were concerned about some of the comments of the officers ad- that were there that day. Uh, now, I, I can't validate that. I don't know whether it happened or it didn't. But, but again, is that something that should be investigated? Are those questions that need to be asked by the Police Services Board about conduct, alleged conduct, I should say, probably, of, of officers that are attending the scene? Absolutely. If, if there's a listen, uh, uh, you know, I have a relative who's on, on, uh, on the police force, and I know that it's a quasi-military um, environment, and they take uh, uh, their conduct very, very seriously and investigated and if so some if an officer or officers were out of line uh then that should be investigated uh, on the other hand i've also read reports and seen reports in fact there have been some arrests some 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 convicted uh, um uh, 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 not terrorists but you know the the law street vandals i guess were part of that milieu and weren't according to reports that and i wasn't there that i've read about um, we're, we're also creating some, some issues that should be factored in as well. So it should be fair all about. The police's role is to maintain the peace and, and do it in a way that, that doesn't inflame the situation. And if, they, if anybody 
uh, didn't do that, then they should be held to account. Where do we go from here? I mean, and I'm not asking you, okay, the next 20 seconds to give us the solution so we can move on from this, because this is a very complex situation. But the mayor, of course, as we mentioned off the top, is trying to hold a meeting on Friday. I don't even know if anybody's going to show up. But it, and I don't even know if they do what they're going to be able to accomplish in, in, in a short period of time like this. But clearly the status quo is not, is not going to be sufficient. I mean, we've got to do something here. Yeah, no, there's no question about that. Uh, and I don't know whether anybody's going to show up. It doesn't look as if uh, uh, there's certainly a push to prevent people from showing up. Um, as well, um, I, I think it, it, it needs to be it needs to be uh, uh, noted that uh, uh, you know uh, the mayor has appointed a couple of members, very credible members. I know them both, uh, Deirdre Pike, who is well known, uh, Cole Gately, not as well known, uh, perhaps, but someone with impeccable credentials uh, within the community. And and uh, he said to them, you know, can you try to help us out? And even they are being criticized by members of the community as well for even having accepted the, uh, the uh, responsibility of trying to make things better. So where do we go from here? It's a mess. It really is a mess. But it's got to start at some point with dialogue, where people park their egos and their, and their preconditions and, and, um, on all sides, by the way, and say, we're going to get together, have difficult conversations, but the goal we should all agree on is, at the end of this, we're going to make things better. And if they can at least do that, um, it's a step in the right direction. Uh, former Hamilton Mayor Larry DeAnne. Larry, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, right now, the uh, the Premier uh, says that his government needs to determine the real number of children on the autism wait list. This is a very controversial topic, obviously. Uh, and uh, seemed to be part of the, the foundation for a number of uh, people that were so, uh, very upset with the government when they announced their changes to the autism funding policies back in February. And ultimately, of course, the minister in charge at that time, Lisa McLeod, has been uh, removed from that portfolio. And uh, the government is kind of trying to do a restart here, but I'm not so sure that they uh, really quite know where they're going. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Bruce McIntosh, a former PC staffer who actually uh, resigned his position because of some of the changes that were being proposed back in February. Uh, and has been a strong advocate, obviously, since uh, his family, of course, uh, his children living with autism and uh, always a strong voice uh, for those that are, are dealing with these issues and, uh, I guess, very frustrated by some of the actions or inactions of uh, the current government. Bruce, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us again. Oh, always happy to be here, Bill. Good morning. The number, the, the num- It's the numbers game here, isn't it? I mean, we keep talking about numbers, and now the Premier seems to be hung up on this 23,000 which is the number that they quoted, and say that's the number of uh, people that are on the wait list now for autism uh, funding and for autism assistance. And there's uh, an awful lot of contentious contentious issues right now about this, especially about the fact that they're not even sure if that's an accurate number. Well, that's that's the first part of it. And and I'm I'm very grateful to Roman Babber for having having delved into this and pointed it out, because um, all of what uh, Lisa McLeod did, tried to do, said she was doing when she was minister, was all about clear the wait list. But if you don't know how big the wait list really is, um, and there is there are substantial reasons to believe that that 23,000 is, is an absolutely inaccurate number. Um, but what's worse is some of the things that she said about the wait list. She said that none of the kids on the wait list had ever received service, and that was simply a lie. She knew that to be untrue. There were kids on that wait list, children and teenagers, who had been in the IBI program and had been discharged and had now come back under the new rules. Um, There were uh, children there who had been in the ABA program and had received a block of service and were simply waiting for another. So she, she knows that to just be you know, absolutely incorrect. Where, where'd they get the number from? That, where'd they get the number from then, Bruce? Well, <laughs> I I can only imagine that it's a best guess. I know that we were given a similar number uh, when when I was on the committee that was advising Michael Cotto when he was the minister. But the, the difficulty in this is that there are actually nine different regions in the province, each of which has its own overall wait list, and within that list are lists of people waiting for direct service or direct funding. 
and others who are trying to transfer between the two. The, the confusion that that creates um, is, is just, it, it calls the entire, entire number into question. Um, and what's worse is trying to, trying to validate that number is there's a bunch of things in the way, not the least of which being privacy legislation. Because each of those regional programs is the custodian of the health record of each of the children in the program. And so without parental consent, they can't just give it to the ministry or share it with one another. So if, if a parent has managed to get onto two different regions' lists because of you know their in-law's address or uh, parent's address or what have you, we've no way to eliminate duplication. Uh, we, just, we just simply don't know. And, I mean, there's no question that it's a large number. I, nobody's, nobody's arguing that point. But the, what's in behind there just shows the, the government, I mean, they've had a year to sort this, and, and they're nowhere on it. Well, and that seems pretty evident, and, and we, we had that discussion uh, with the minister. I, I still recall, of course, the day that you were on the program, and then Minister McLeod was on uh, not too long after that uh, in the same show. Uh, and I, I, I asked her at that time, I said, you know, where's where's the research on this? I mean, they were spouting numbers back and forth. And like you said, they've been in not quite a year in office by the time that they announced these revisions to the policy at that time. But how how can you announce a new policy and, and announce revisions to it, Bruce, if you don't have your act together and you don't what, know what the actual numbers are? I, I can't answer that question, Bill, unless, you know, as Lisa McLeod did, you just try and pull a rabbit out of a hat. Um, this This is now... The Ford McLeod waitlist. They have had a year, and they've been unable to sort it. And that that should that has to shock people. I mean, if you're really committed to solving this problem, that is fundamental research that you should have had coming off the blocks, and that was not done. So the McLeod waitlist is it, it's just it's a disaster. Now, what Roman Babber said in his report, and, and he is absolutely correct about this, we can no longer, you know, keep hassling over what list and whether lists were combined and exactly the number on the list. We know that we've got somewhere in the vicinity of $600 million to work with, and we should be trying to meet the needs of as many kids as possible with the money that we have to spend. And Roman came out with, with a, a pretty good plan. It's not flawless, but, you know, in terms of a, in terms of a really quality step forward from what McLeod dumped in, in February, uh, this, is, this is very, very good. It is a lot better. And I'm hopeful that, that Minister Smith is, is going to, you know, take it up and really examine it because there's, there's some really good stuff in there. There are a few things that could be polished up a little bit more, but he's, he's, got, he's got a framework. And, you know, waiting any longer. I mean, our, we've been waiting for an improvement since the last election. We've been waiting for something to get fixed about the McLeod disaster since February. Um, this, this is it. And we, we really need to be moving forward with it. Uh, just for those who may not know, uh, the Roman Babbitt that you're referring to, of course, is a Toronto Air MPP who actually uh, did a review of uh, this file, internal review. And as you mentioned, the report is now out there. I, I, I'm assuming the Premier has read this. He mentioned uh, uh, when he was on our sister station, Global News Radio 640 out of Toronto, uh, that uh, he said, I think the phrase he used was, uh, it's a pretty good report. So somebody in the office, in the Premier's office, has read this. But, it, but isn't step one to collect the appropriate data before you start developing policy? One would think. Um, but, you know, again, I, and I've said this before, and I think I've said it here on your show, this is, this is yet another case of fire, aim, ready. You yeah. know? Yeah. The, the government just decides, oh, we've got, the, we've got the perfect solution here, and we've got, you know, her, uh, her slogan of clear the wait list was, you know, this, this was supposed to be, you know, the wonderful thing. But here we are in July. And she claimed that kids were going to start coming off that wait list, however large it was. She claimed that that would begin happening in April. It's July, and we've only had a few hundred, I'm told about 500, 
uh, offers of funding that have gone out. That's that's inexcusable, you know. Not not to mention that the amount of money that's involved is not going to meet the needs of most of the kids uh, in the program. But you know, here, that's a, that's a fiscal quarter bill has gone by since she said that they'd be taking kids off the list, and right now today, just just absolute hashtag fail. Well, and, and I want to be clear on something here too, because I know that uh, you know the people are going to say, "Well, you know, this is the full. This is a problem that's going on." The previous government uh, messed this file up as well, and I, I can understand, Bruce, how frustrating it must be for your family and for other families that are involved in this to think that okay, every time you think there's going to be a new beginning, uh, it's variations on the same theme over and over again. And uh, you really have to ask yourself if the people real, that are supposed to be developing this policy even have a a, a concept, an idea of 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 the. Challenges that you're facing, and and how to address some of those challenges. Well, it, it, it's it's somewhere between crazy making and terrifying. You know, it's it's crazy making in the sense that we had a program that was working, not well enough. There were things that needed to be improved, but instead of fixing that and making it better, she blew it up, just threw it away. But terrifying because. For parents whose whose kids were were getting or were or were living in hope of getting what their children needed, um, these these childhood budgets are just utterly inadequate to to the need. I mean, well, they're not needs based. They're they're cookie cutter. Everybody gets the same thing, you know. Like all the kids that need eyeglasses are going to get the same prescription. How stupid is that? Yeah. Um, but on on either on either front crazy making for the parents and terrifying because what it what it means for the kids well so, and as we've yeah, talked about in the past and you you know well about what we're talking here is is that when the, the the children themselves are in situations like this where they don't know where they're going they don't know the, about the sustainability of the program uh, when when they're in flux it makes a bad situation worse for the families and and there's got to be some stability here and and I'm, I'm hoping that the the people in Queens Park can understand that that this is where they've got to go on this and when we've challenged them about for instance as you say the one size fits all that they seem to be pushing on 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 your families right now uh, that's got to be one of the first things that on the agenda I guess when they're going to sit down which leads me to my next question. Do you get any indication at all, Bruce, that you are going to be consulted about this when, with the new minister now about some of the changes? I know you were before, and you gave them a list and said, this is some of the stuff I think you can do to improve the situation uh, of, uh, uh, in the whole program. And they simply ripped up what you guys said, and so now we're going to do this instead. And I don't know where they got that information from. You'd like well, to think they've learned from that mistake. I, I, well, it's clear to me that, that Lisa McLeod didn't know what she was doing to begin with. And that's why she got the boot. I mean, it's. I mean, she's she's done things that have. Well, she deserved what she got. Let's just leave it at that. Um, you know. It, but here's here's another point. It, it, this isn't just about the families with with children and youth with autism, right? There are people who have lost their jobs because of these funding cuts. A hundred over a hundred. At, at Aaron Oak uh, kids alone, these are these are practitioners of applied behavior analysis who are now without work, um, and and there are more there are more cuts coming. And those people are like even if this does get fixed, many of those people are going to go on to do different things or potentially move out of the province. I know that I know that there are service providers in the U.S. that are trying to you know, encourage our people to go down there. And once they move, Bill, it's going to be really hard to get them back. Or replace them, it, it, which is the other option. It, well, it, it, you don't create a behavior analyst overnight. Exactly. Right? Even even with the one-to-one people who work directly with the kids, it is a 40-hour course plus a practicum. You know, it this... This doesn't snap your fingers happen, but the supervision at the upper levels, the psychologists and the board certified behavior analysts, they're they're looking for work and they're going to go where that work is. And it should be here. But, you know, if, if Ontario is supposed to be open for business, this is 
this is a heck of a way to, you know, try and show that. But it's one of the, I, I, I'm going to assume it's an unintended consequence, though, Bruce. And we saw this happen about 15, 20 years ago here in the province uh, when, when the government started to, to mess around with the health care system. And we had a number of specialists at that time, if you recall, that all of a sudden decided to head south uh, to places like California and Kentucky and, and who knows where because they had there was stability there. It wasn't just for the money. It was to say, hey, this is a government that believes in a health care system and, and we, we're going to have some stability here. Uh, where there's yep. instability, these professionals, and that's what they are, and I've had the uh, the pleasure of meeting a number of them, of course, uh, over the years uh, as we've done shows about how autism is being treated and, and how these families are being helped. Uh, they're going to go where they know that there's going to be some support for them. And if it's not going to be in Ontario, you're the loser here, you and your families. Well, this this is it. And I, I remember that incident very clearly because um, my ophthalmologist was, was one of those people. And in fact, he moved to Kentucky and he's never come back. Um, I have been very fortunate to find uh, Dr. David Wong at St. Michael's, who's <laughs> an amazing guy. Um, but, you know, what it takes a long time to build something good. It doesn't take very long to shatter it. And, and that's, um, you know, if, if, we don't, if we don't hit the reset button and turn this around right quick, the, the situation is going to get so much worse because, you know, as, as the, the number of behavior analysts uh, drops, then it, it's not going to matter how much money we're giving to families because they won't be able to find a place to spend it. Um, and, and their kids aren't going to be able to get help because the help isn't there. And how wrong is that? Uh, very. Uh, we're just about out of time. If there are two words, I think, that we could impart to the, to the minister as they uh, embark on trying to fix this again, needs-based. Uh, there's two words that I don't think the, the previous minister seemed to understand, but it's got to be part of the discussion here, Bruce. It absolutely does. Um, this, is, this is a spectrum disorder, and the needs vary widely. So we've, we've got to get clinicians back in charge of making those decisions, We've got to take steps. They're right there in, in Roman Babber's report about how to protect the budget because, you know, there, there are instances where people have, where, where practitioners have overbilled and, and so on. I won't say that it's, you know, any sort of a pandemic, but it does happen. We need to protect against that. We need to make sure that the money is spent wisely and fairly, but that it addresses the needs of the kids. And, and we can get there. I am just, I am desperately hoping that Todd Smith is the guy to do that. I believe that he is. We've been told that we're going to be able to meet with him very soon. Um, you know, we spoke with, uh, with Jeremy Roberts yesterday, the new parliamentary assistant who's joining, joining NEP in that role. And, you know, I'm, I have to be an optimist. You know, there, both of the PAs have family members on the spectrum. They understand what uh, what needs based has to be well that's that and that's got to be the first step bruce we're just about out of time here stay in touch would you please and let us know how this develops i'm at your disposal sir thanks again bruce mcintosh you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml uh, a week or so ago on the program we talked to you about uh, some of the accusations uh, well they were founded accusations uh proof positive uh, about some patronage appointments and uh, friends in high places uh, not low places like Garth Brooks, but high places like Queen's Park, uh, which led ultimately, I guess, to the resignation of Dean French, who was the chief of staff for uh, Premier uh, Doug Ford. Uh, now we find out that uh, on the federal level, same thing's going on. Uh, four of six judges that have been appointed in New Brunswick recently have very strong links to Liberal Cabinet Minister Dominic LeBlanc. Uh, Democracy Watch is on this right from the get-go. Dominic er, Duff Conacher, of course, is the co-founder of Democracy Watch, also an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa, joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Duff, thanks again for the time, uh, especially in light of what's going on here. Uh, you've already filed, just to bring our listeners up to speed, you've already filed a grievance with the Integrity Commissioner here in Ontario about what was going on with the Ford administration, have you not? Yes, we have, and uh, it's calling for an investigation of seven appointees who have connections to Doug Ford and uh, and also to Dean French, his former chief of staff. And the big point is that just because Dean French has resigned doesn't mean that uh, he may not have uh, broken rules while he was the chief of staff for Premier Ford and that uh, 
just because he's resigned doesn't mean that the integrity commissioner shouldn't look into it so uh, and, and issue a public ruling. So we're hoping that will happen soon. We do. Uh, well, you can cut and paste that request, I guess, and send it off to the federal uh, government, too, because this thing with uh, uh, what's happening in New Brunswick is rather troubling. Yeah, we have to look into it a bit more. The Globe is reporting that uh, Dominic LeBlanc, the uh, cabinet minister for the Trudeau Liberals, who has connections to these uh, people who have been appointed as judges, actually uh, sat on the committee that reviewed the appointees. Um, we have to look into that more. He would have had to play a direct role in it the way that um, the reports say that Dean French played a direct role in, in the appointments under under the Ford government. But uh, if he is sitting there, then he should have recused himself, and if he didn't, he violated the Federal Conflict of Interest Act. Maybe we could just, for the sake of our listeners who may not know the process about how these are appointed, because, I mean, I, I ran this by some people today, and they said, well, come on, that's you know that's what happens. You know, when the conservatives are in power, uh, amazingly, it's conservatives that seem to get these judicial appointments. When the liberals are in power, it seems to be liberals. And, and, and you just have to wonder just about how far that goes. Uh, what we do know from the story in the Globe today is that each and every one of these people that did receive these appointments uh, did make significant financial contributions to the party and to Mr. LeBlanc personally. Yes, and then there's a family member and a neighbor as well yeah. of his. And, uh, you know, it's, it just shows it's the latest in many past scandals of appointments, not just of judges and other people like the Ford government level. It's it's people representing the government and and Jenny Byrne, uh, a uh, staff member for Premier Ford. He appointed her to the Ontario Energy Board. And, of course, the attempted appointment of his, uh, Ron Tavener, Ford's old friend, as OPP commissioner. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's lots at the federal level, and there's there's lots of examples across the country. And it just shows that the appointment process has to be changed. Uh, and what it should be changed to across the country is... Uh, slightly better than the Ontario system for appointing provincial court judges. It's the best system that we have in Canada. It's just not quite fully independent enough, uh, but it is wouldn't be a huge improvement over the system that currently exists. Uh, and the Ontario system, the way it works is there's a committee, and, and the flaw in it is that seven of the 13 members are appointed by the ruling party's attorney general. And there shouldn't be anyone on the government on this committee. It should be fully independent from the government. And, But the good thing about the Ontario Committee for Provincial Court Judge Appointments is that it sends a short list of only two or three people to the Attorney General, and the Attorney General has to choose from that short list. And you compare that to appointments across the country, often it's the Cabinet choosing whoever they want, mm-hmm. or in the case of federal judicial appointments, uh, the uh, committee that is set up sends a very long list to the Minister of Justice and uh, the Prime Minister's office. And that very long list allows the Liberals to go down the list and choose someone who's a Liberal every time. And when the Conservatives are in power, the Conservatives to go down the list and choose someone who's a Conservative. So the key is to have the, a fully independent committee send a, a short list of only two or three people and that the uh, government then has to choose from those two or three people and and has no choice but to uh, choose. In Britain, they actually, the committee there sends uh, one name only. And if the government rejects that name for, for appointing either a, a judge or a member of a tribunal or board or commission, then the government actually has to issue a written explanation why they've rejected that one person that the committee recommended. So they even have a better system in Britain, and uh, we can easily change to that system. And any government that doesn't want to and any party that says, no, no, we don't need that, well, you know they're committed to patronage and cronyism, and they're unethical, and don't vote for them because you know what they're going to do. They're going to help their friends and their supporters, and they're not going to address the public's concern or ensure that there's an independent enforcement system to hold them accountable for wrongdoing. Duff, why aren't we having that conversation? I, I know when we talk to elected officials about this, invariably they say, oh, come on, that's way down the list. But there is a question of ethics here, and, and, and if it's way down the list, maybe it's time to move it up the list. Uh, you got to ask the parties. I don't know. When you ask Canadians, uh, the latest poll um, by CBC, very extensive poll came out, shows that 10% of, of Canadians uh, trust politicians, that 80% to 90% of them, depending on how the question is asked, 
think that politicians are concerned about voters' concerns versus helping them, their family members and friends. And you have the opposition parties who want to get into power, and they don't have put forward platforms that would clean all these things up. Not usually. Chrétien did it in 93 and won. Uh, Harper did it in 2006 and won. Now, they both broke a lot of their promises, about half of them each. Trudeau did it in, two, in 2015 and won, and he's broken a lot of his promises, too, to clean things up and, and change politics as usual. Uh, this whole thing about the Liberals changing the appointment system and making it more merit-based and transparent is just a blatant false claim. The only thing they've done is add the goal of diversity. That, that's the only change that they made that was substantive in terms of making the appointment of judges or anyone else the federal cabinet appoints different from the way the Conservatives did it and every other government did it going back in time in Canada. And the NDP's come out with this platform, doesn't even address this issue in its platform. It's, it's, and it only has about a dozen promises in terms of democratic reforms and government accountability, which is ridiculous because there's a hundred changes that needs to be ma- need to be made to make the system honest, ethical, open, representative, and waste preventing. So you'd have to ask the NDP, why wouldn't you address this issue? You want to get into power to do what? Help your friends and family? Because that's what it seems like from their platform. Well, and that's been the, the history of it, isn't it, Duff? I mean, you know, everybody wants to kick at the can, and as soon as they get there, uh, you know, they, they can self, sound as self-righteous as they want uh, when they're campaigning for the job, and they, we're going to switch this around, we're going to do this, we're going to make everything fair, and everybody's on a level playing field. Uh, yet they, they, they're guilty of doing the exact same thing when they get in there every time. I mean, can I, off the top of my head, I don't, has, has a liberal government ever appointed a, a conservative to the, to the bench? I don't know. It well, just they seems... Have, they have. They usually mix them in. Uh, and Kretschmann was, was uh, one of the uh, best at doing this because he would, for example, he, he appointed Jerry Butts' uh, aunt, Sister Peggy Butts, as a senator back in the 90s, uh, at the same time as appointing uh, a couple of liberal lobbyists and fundraisers. And so, of course, it's very interesting that she was a nun and she's been appointed to the Senate and she doesn't own property, which is one of the requirements for being a senator. And, of course, the media focused on that and didn't focus on the fact that he was also appointing a couple of cronies. So, um, yeah, they, they mix it up a little bit, but it just shouldn't be allowed. They shouldn't have this discretion. These are people who are enforcing laws. And you cannot have politicians choosing the people who enforce the laws, especially the laws that apply to them. Right now, Democracy Watch is in the Federal Court of Appeal challenging the appointment of the new ethics commissioner and the new lobbying commissioner by the Trudeau cabinet. They handpicked the people, and those two commissioners were investigating situations involving Trudeau and other cabinet ministers at the same time as the Trudeau cabinet chose them. You're just not allowed to choose your own judge. That's just a fundamental rule of democratic good government. And and Ford was trying to do the same thing in terms of uh, appointing his friend as OPP commissioner, one of the key frontline officers that enforces laws that apply to the premier and his cabinet ministers and government officials. So I I don't understand it. Every poll in the last 20 years has shown that 80% plus Canadians are, are concerned about, really upset about these, especially people who are swing voters, right? Swing voters swing because they're seeking good government. They're seeking people who actually address problems honestly, ethically, openly, representatively, prevent waste. And that's why they swing back and forth from party to party. And, and if you want to win an election, you want to attract those swing voters, which means you should be promising to clean up politics in every single way. And I don't understand the federal party, especially the federal NDP right now, issued a platform that's really bad in terms of cleaning up politics. It's going to do very little and certainly not enough. And they're not going to attract swing voters as a result. Because swing voters will look at their platform and say, that's not going to do it. Why would I vote for them? They're just trying to get in there and get power to help them, their f- friends and family like every past government. And again, Chrétien attracted swing voters by 93, promising to government with integrity. Harper in 2006 with the Federal Accountability Act. Trudeau in, in 2015 with his promise for open, honest, and accountable government. It's the way to win elections, and you don't even see parties do it. I, I, you have to ask them. I really don't understand it. The, the element here that we, we need to underscore here 
is that for them that, that will say, and I've heard this in the past from uh, government officials when we've queried them about this, that's how it's, it's a very complex situation. It's very com- There's already a template, as you just mentioned, uh, that, that can be used that's better than what they're doing right now. So it's, it's not as if they have to reinvent the wheel here. No, it's been proven to work. So uh, it, the Ontario system has been proven to break the old boys network that led to mostly white middle-aged males who were supporters of the ruling party being appointed as judges. It, all the studies show it's, it's one of the world's best systems. Again, not as independent as it should be in terms of the choice of the committee members, but it has still worked better than uh, any other system in Canada and should be extended to every person that's appointed by cabinet who enforces the law in every government across the country. And any party that says they're not interested in doing that, don't vote for them. They're, you know what they're going to do. They're going to get in there and hand a bunch of government jobs to their friends. And so uh, it, it, there is no excuse for it. And again, I don't understand these parties want to be in power, and yet they won't promise to make the changes that 80% of voters want in every poll that has been done in the last 20 years. But isn't it sort of every time we talk about this, though, Duff, that the outrage uh, usually falls along party lines? Uh, if it's a liberal government that does this, conservatives are outraged by this. So if it's a conservative government that does it, the liberals and others are outraged by this. Yeah, uh, we should all be outraged by it. Well, people are, um, but yes, you're right, based on which party is in power. Um, but people should realize if it's not changed, the system's not changed, then all you're going to see is eventually your party's going to lose. And then you'll see a bunch of party hacks from a party you don't like appointed. And that's why swing voters are the ones that determine elections. Again, they swing. So that's why I really don't understand parties that don't promise to clean these things up because it's, it's proven. I mentioned the federal election results. So you go across the, all the provinces in the last uh, 20 years and look at the elections. The party that promised to clean up politics either won more seats or won the election. It's a way to attract swing voters, and swing voters are the ones that determine elections. Yeah, the, you don't care about doing anything for the whatever percentage of voters will always vote for your party. You know, the liberals and conservatives have about 20% of voters, the NDP about 10%. They'll always vote for them, no matter what they do, and they'll always be on Twitter and social media defending what their party does and attacking the others. Those kind of rabid partisan voters, you don't have to care about them. They're going to show up and vote for you. You want to win an election, attract swing voters, and this is the way to win an election. Every single provincial government that's been formed in the last 20 years, and federal, the, the party that has promised the most to clean up politics has been the one that's made the greatest advances. So they're working against their own interests by thinking they can get into power without promising accountability. And then if they want to break those promises, they're going to lose. The, the liberals are in trouble because of ethics. No, no other issue that they've broken promises on touched them in the polls. But the SNC-Lavalin thing, which has all these kind of uh, appointments and uh, unethical behavior and trying to protect friends of the party, all those elements in it, that's what caused the drop in the polls for the Liberals. And that's because swing voters swung away from them. They're looking for good government. Duff, what do they do? I mean, once you gain power, and we've, as you say, seen changes of government on a pretty regular basis now from one to the other because of those swing voters, do they simply sit down and listen and say, okay, these are the people that we owe a debt to now, and these are the ones that we have to find positions for? Uh, you'd like to think that there's that there's some objectivity in this, as opposed to simply, uh, I, I can't believe that they're sitting in some office someplace and simply saying, oh, i got to give Duff this job because, you know, he was a major contributor. I promised this to this one, and that's the go- and go down the list that, in that fashion. Well, let's take the Liberals as an example. And the Conservatives were the same back when Harper was first elected. The Liberals had uh, more than 10,000 applications for government jobs. And that's what happens when you're out of power for 10 years. There's a lot of people out there who have been slogging away as volunteers. And only a few of them can be hired to work for cabinet ministers. And some of them want to set up lobby, lobbying shops or, be, or join lobbying firms, which they do. Uh, and we file complaints about those people. We've already filed complaints about uh, Ford-connected lobbyists who have been fundraising for him, and we'll be filing more, people who worked on his campaign. 
you can't work on someone's campaign, help them get elected, and then become a lobbyist who lobbies the government. I mean, it's just a clear conflict of interest. And the Federal Court of Appeal ruled on that 10 years ago and said it, it's clearly a, co- a conflict of interest and it's illegal. Um, and then the rest look for those government appointments. And any government that sticks around at the federal level or in the big provinces like Ontario, there's about 3,000 jobs that uh, if the government sticks around for 10 years, they'll be able to hand out. And out of those 10,000 people, the Liberals have been appointing a, f- a fair number of Liberals. Uh, about a, f- a quarter of their judicial appointments have been uh, people with definite ties to the Liberals. And then the others, you know, they're, they're vetting them. We know that it's been come out in the media recently that they, they've been vetting people applying to be judges. And they may not be a donor, but they're likely a Liberal. And just because they can't be identified as a liberal because they've never made a donation doesn't mean that they aren't. And Trudeau himself said last December, uh, he made the submission in one of his end-of-year interviews, uh, that they wouldn't be appointing someone who doesn't agree with their values. So it's explicit. And that's why the power has to be taken away and given to an independent committee that has to publicly post any job that's available and, and that committee, when I say independent, I mean fully independent of all the parties. The government, governing party, no party should have a role in choosing anyone who's on that committee. It should be set people from organizations where uh, it can't be rigged in any way. And then they should be coming up with a short list uh, of qualified people who uh, they send to whichever minister or, or the whole cabinet to appoint, and the cabinet should be required to choose from the short list, and that should apply to anyone who's involved in law enforcement in any way, shape, or form. It's really a serious issue. It affects the enforcement of laws and the fairness of enforcement of laws, and uh, that's why it's so important. And what, what did the Liberals do at the federal level, and what has Ford uh, done? Changed the rules, but really just left it all in the Cabinet's hand and, and created a big charade that somehow it's more independent or transparent or merit-based. They haven't they haven't changed the rules in any way to ensure that. Duff Conacher, uh, co-founder of Democracy Watch, of course. Duff, always a pleasure. We'll uh, follow uh, your investigation into what's going on on this federal level. I'm sure we'll be in touch again. Thanks for this today. Thanks very much, yes. We'll have reports on all our complaints uh, as they are ruled on. Good. Thanks again. Duff Conacher. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.